Good morning, Horizon family. I mean, the 830 people are much louder than that. Good morning, Horizon family. There you go. There you go. There you go. My name is Beth Guckenberger. It's my joy to be here with you today as we continue in this Royal Habits series that you're in. I know you all have been studying the book of 2 Kings. And while today we won't be continuing in 2 Kings, I do want to pick up where Chad left off last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to tune in and watch it online. But he was talking to us and challenging us to assess our lives and to lay our choices, our practices, our belief systems up against the Word of God and feel the friction if there is some. And to allow to ask ourselves, is there some kind of habit that we need to course correct? Is there some kind of perspective or priority that doesn't line up with God's word? When I put my life next to God's word, do I feel affirmed and encouraged? At the end of the day, all we want to do is be like Jesus. And so he left us with that challenge last week. What, do we, what kind of study and conversation do we need to continue to have with the Lord in order to, to tenderize our hearts, to be sensitive to what it is that he wants to do in and through our lives. And among all the holy habits that you will study in this uh, series, I'm going to focus in on, the, on this habit, this royal habit, this holy habit of seeing people the way God does. Today's passage is going to come from the book of Luke where Jesus is the guest of a man named Simon the Pharisee. And you'll remember Pharisees, Pharisee literally means to be separated, to be set apart from. Pharisees didn't want to be contaminated by people who were what they would have considered to be unholy. They were people who were more focused on what the outside looked like than what was going on in the inside. They would have been accused of being the kind of people who were paying more attention to the letter of the law than the spirit of it. And so it's interesting that in a prominent Pharisee's house, Simon, Jesus accepts a dinner invitation. We'll see what he has in mind as we read from the book of Luke chapter 7. It says, Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And right off the bat, I just want to paint the scene for you in your mind that in the Middle East, uh, to a certain extent still today, but absolutely in the days of Jesus, dinner parties were held in like open-air courtyards where people would gather around kind of like the peanut gallery, even if you weren't invited to the table, you could be a curious observer and just hang out around the edges of a dinner party. So this woman didn't like break into Simon's house the way we might imagine it given the way that we host dinner parties today. She just was there around the outside. And the roads were really dusty, and so people wore sandals. And it would, the host would have three jobs when someone came to their house for dinner. They should wash the feet or see that somebody got their feet washed by someone in their household because they're dirty from the sandals that they wore on those dusty roads. They would kiss them in some kind of greeting and they would anoint their head with some kind of oil. That would be the job of the host. We'll read in a minute, Simon didn't do any of those things. And instead, this, those are seemingly little things, but they added up to send a very big message. Instead, this uninvited guest, this woman, goes ahead and begins to execute the role of the host, even though she wasn't even a guest. 
And we notice right away the beginning of the story a couple of things. The first thing is that Jesus is a people drawler to himselfer. He, I mean, people come to see what he has to say, what he's going to do. In the chapters preceding this particular passage, you'll see that there's like all these references to, and wherever Jesus was, there was a great crowd. And as he went to the next town, there was followed a great crowd. I'm like, he was someone who gathered people to himself, all kinds of people. So it doesn't surprise me there were some curious observers. So what's Jesus doing at a Pharisee's house? What are they talking about? The second thing that I notice is we don't have to hold back how we feel about anything in front of Jesus. He wants everything. He wants all of our emotion. He wants all of our affection. He's not looking for us to be prim and proper. He wants to know exactly how it is that we are feeling. He invites her to be demonstrative. And the third thing I notice is like <laughs> we can see a need and not be invited to do anything about it and still do something about it anyway. I mean, that kind of faith that this woman demonstrated, I mean, what kind of courage would it have taken to bust into the inner circle of a party you weren't invited to, not only because of her social status, but I mean, she was known as the sinner, and then to begin to do the very work of what should have been the most important person at the table, that host, depending on how you see it. I think she was demonstrating what, what we know um, from the Hebrew language was chutzpah, right? Chutzpah is that Hebrew word that means utter audacity, gall, nerve. And Jesus is going to honor her for the chutzpah that she shows us. As Simon was watching this woman, he would have probably had this kind of like mixture of like disgust. Like what's that sinful woman doing touching him? And also satisfaction because he kind of had a hunch this whole time. This Jesus is a false prophet. There's no way a holy man would lack the kind of discernment you would need in order to figure out that this woman should not be touching you. He, he was showing for all of us who are reading this what his weakness is. He's looking at her from the outside, right? He's looking at her behavior. He's looking at her appearance. He's looking at her reputation. Often, let's just remember this church, when people say something condescending about someone, that they're giving us insight into what is their weakness, not the person that they're criticizing. And the God way is this. The God way says in 1 Samuel 16, man looks at the outward appearance, but God is always looking at the heart. This is our natural sense. We naturally look at people and we judge. We judge them on what they look like or maybe something that we know about them, like where they live or what they do or whatever seems important to you that you measure people against. It's our human nature. It's literally natural for us to do that. But for those of us who have chosen to be Christ followers, that natural self has been put to death. We don't get to live that way any longer. We now have a supernatural kind of sense. And we don't get to judge people based on their outward appearances. We are called and instructed to look at them at their heart. And Jesus wanted to use someone kind of unlikely to teach Simon this lesson. I understand that. He's done that for me too. If I haven't met you yet, I work with back-to-back -back ministries. I'm a 26-year missionary and 15 of those years I was living in Mexico and while I was living in Mexico we were partnering with uh, one of our partners was this pastor he had a he was a pastor and had a church in a like a squatters community and a squatters community is a community where everybody who lives in there doesn't own the land that they're living on instead they're squatting there using materials from a garbage dump in order to construct some kind of shelter for them and their family and in the middle of this community of thousands of people Jose Angel is building a church he had a sixth grade education, was missing a couple of his front teeth. And he asked us if we would help him increase the footprint of his church because God bless him, it was growing. 
So Back to Back made an arrangement with him that we would pay the materials for the second floor of this block building if he and his church would provide the labor. That felt like a lovely handshake, a way for us to work together towards those goals. And that project was going on for about eight months, and then I got word that the person who gave us the money for those materials was going to come visit in two months. And so it felt like we'd been at the 80% mark for a while. And so I called him, like, Jose Angel, hey, I just, was, I just wanted to let you know, like, I'm going to give you some extra money so we can hire some people to finish the project. I know you've been working really hard on it. You're almost there, but let's just get over this hump and put this thing together. And then when the donor who's, who donated the money is coming, we can have, like, this beautiful ribbon-cutting ceremony. It's going to be awesome. And he said to me, oh, Beth, you don't get it. He said, you, you know how people get work in my community, right? And I did. I've, I've been there hundreds of times. It's not a community where men are employed the way that we might consider employment here. Instead, you get dressed up every morning and you go stand at a corner at the edge of the community and people would pull up and pick up trucks and a foreman who might be looking for laborers in his field or in his factory or on his construction site would look at the people gathered and say, I want you, 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 and you. And they would jump in the back of his pickup truck and they would take off for the day of work. And at the end of the morning, if nobody picked you up, you had to turn around and walk home full of shame that you didn't have any place to work that day and you couldn't contribute back into your household. And so Jose Angel intercepted those guys on the way from the corner every morning when, that, when those runs were done. And he'd invite them to come work on the church. And it was a way for these men to be able to feel like they were contributing and to go home at the end of the day dirty and to have a lunch provided for them. And it brought value to them. And he said to me, if you make me finish that second floor, you know I'm starting a third. I, I think you think this is a construction project. This is not a construction project. This is a discipleship program. These are not people that would ever come to my church on a Sunday morning, but they'll spend all day with me. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm looking at it with earthly eyes. I wanted something accomplished. He wanted an opportunity to spend time with people who, don't, who otherwise wouldn't be inside of a church. I, <laughs> I was going to a conference. I was just attending a leadership conference. I wanted to grow in some of my leadership skills. So I went to this conference in Dallas. There were thousands of people there. And I, I, I mean, I just went with like my jeans and like I, I didn't know that I would know anybody and I wasn't really particularly trying to impress anyone. But on the second day, the conference director came and found me and told me that that evening at the evening session, the speaker, a man named Dr. Crawford Loritz, was not going to be able to speak. He was having trouble getting there because they had some bad weather over in Atlanta and they knew who I was and they were wondering if I thought I had a message I would be willing to present to the conference that evening. And I was like, absolutely, that'd be great. And so I spent the rest of the afternoon preparing and that evening I got ready to go backstage to get my microphone on me and, you know, I'm just like in my jeans and, and uh, the, that particular session happened to be sponsored by Moody Bible. So if you know those folks out of Chicago, they take their Bible very seriously. That's where your pastor graduated from. And, uh, they were back there in their beautiful suits and with their Bibles much bigger than mine. And I walk in with my pink Bible. This is what I always preach with and my slightly ripped jeans. And they thought I was the girl passing out the programs. And uh, they said, hey, did you hear who did they get tonight to replace Dr. Loritz? I was like, me, it's me. I'm going to preach tonight for you. And they're looking at me like, really? And in their defense, at the end of the evening, we had a lovely relationship and I ended up being on Moody Bible Radio a bunch of times. And, and but we had a good, healthy conversation at the end of the night, a little iron sharpens iron about some preconceived notions they had about me, right? Wondering what I might have to offer that community. It's okay. It happens all the time. 
We judge people in line at a store. We judge our new neighbors. We judge our son's new girlfriend. We, we take one look and we make a series of assumptions based on what they have on or where they're from or what they look like. It's natural. But the problem is when we accept Jesus, he makes us different. We don't get to live naturally anymore. Now we get to live supernaturally. In May, I was able to be for a week in, in Turkey with a group of leaders who serve the persecuted church. And if you just saw them walking down the street, they just look like everyday kind of people. But in the middle of one of our meetings, when I was listening to the stories of the ways in which they're daily risking their life in order to perpetuate the gospel, I thought to myself, if I had some kind of supernatural pair of goggles on, I bet these people have some big muscles. Bigger than our muscles. Didn't cost us very much to get here this morning. We're not going to get in trouble for having been here this morning. Jesus was looking at this woman and he understood with his supernatural pair of goggles exactly what this was going to cost her to break through that crowd and to be so demonstrative in her affection for him. She saw this need and she sought to meet it. It wasn't even like it was that big of a need. It was just like he needed his feet washed. But I'm telling you, Simon didn't forget to wash this guy's feet. Simon, I mean, Washing feet has been embedded in the Middle Eastern culture for like a thousand years before this. This is not something he forgot to do. He was sending a message to Jesus, and she was sending one too. And I want to teach you this morning a Hebrew word. I know Chad teaches a lot of Hebrew words, and I feel like every time I'm here, I do. And I just want to remind you, there's no vocabulary test to get in heaven. There's no spelling test. If you forget what this word is, if you forget how to spell it, like as in as soon as I tell it to you, it's okay. I consider Hebrew words like doorknobs and they take us into new rooms of understanding and all that really counts is that we live differently now in our new room of understanding. It doesn't matter if we remember how it is that we got there. And the Hebrew word that I wanna teach you is the word ra'ah, which is simply the word to see. And the reason we're gonna learn the word to see is because this is a story about seeing. She saw Jesus, Jesus saw her. Simon's gonna ask some questions about seeing. Seeing is a big part of this story. I want us to know this word. But the, the reason this word is so fascinating to me is at the same time it means to see, it also means to respond to a need. So embedded in this very definition is the challenge. If you don't do anything about what it is you see, you could argue not have even seen it in the first place. We, you know, in English, we have the word to see and to look are kind of like synonyms. I, this means more than just to look. It actually would mean more like to look, look, like to take a double take, to really, really see someone. In my neighborhood, I have a, a family I'm pretty sure is going through a divorce. I don't know for a fact, but I, there's a lot of evidence. The children aren't always in residence. The husband's not there anymore. There's a moving truck. Like, I, I'm pretty sure that's what, I, that's what I'm looking at but I haven't done anything about it. So have I actually seen what's happening there? At Horizon, I want you to know that we literally commit to, see, to look looking at people, to seeing people, not for how they look, not for how their circumstances are. We're gonna see people wherever they are as utterly and absolutely worth it. It's why this church supports ministries to the least of these. You walked in, I saw a bunch of signs out there for City Gospel Mission, and certainly you've been involved with Back to Back for the last two decades. When we get involved with the least of these, of those who are um, marginalized, it changes our perspectives. It changes our lives. It reminds us of the kinds of things that really, really matter. I just got back this month from Nigeria and there I was interacting with a boy that I met five years ago 
Um, I was there the day he was dropped off at an orphanage. He was 12 years old. I had heard his story. He, it doesn't make sense to us in this zip code, in this time frame, in this culture. But in his world, his, his community, his village considered him at age 12 to be cursed. And for reasons that don't even make sense to us. Like, like maybe the chicken died while he was taking care of it. Or maybe he was born with a full moon. Or like all kinds of things. But they were convinced he was cursed. And so in their belief system, they needed to rid themselves of this curse. And the way that they did it is they take very large nails and they would drive them through uh, somebody who's cursed ears until they died. And they thought he did. And they buried him in a shallow grave, but he didn't die. He just passed out, and they didn't know the difference. And he tried to dig himself later out of that shallow grave, and someone was running by when it happened and called the Nigerian equivalent of 911. And he spent several months in a hospital recovering from those injuries, and a social worker got involved in his story and determined it was not safe for him to go back to that village. So they were bringing him on the day that I happened to be there to an orphanage. I've watched... Hundreds of kids get dropped off at orphanages. It is a brutal experience. So the director was telling me about his story and that he was coming and I was bracing myself and he walks in. He's the happiest kid I've ever seen. He could not stop smiling, smiling about where he was going to sleep and smile about where he's going to eat. And I'm like, hey, buddy, you're going to do your homework right here. He was like so happy about it. I couldn't help myself. I was like, tell me why you're smiling so much. And he's like, oh, auntie. I'm smiling because today feels like a new day. In the last five years since that new day, when I just saw him, he's, he's in high school getting ready to finish up, making plans for his future. He's had all of these new days. Why? Because someone chose to look, look at him. Someone chose to respond to his need and it literally changed his destiny. When we decide to see people, it changes trajectory. And that's what's going to happen to this woman. Her trajectory, her destiny is going to change because Jesus saw her. Jesus answers and says to Simon, I got something to say to you. That's my version. I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? And I think, think about what we just learned about see. He's asking Simon, are you look looking at her? Are you ready to respond to this need? Do you, do you see her? Are you, are you paying attention? It's... It's just a brilliant move because actually Simon thought he was, he, Simon thought that Jesus was the one that couldn't see her. Like you, there's no way he really knows who she is. There's no way he's really looking at her because if he did, he'd never let that guy, he'd never let her touch him. And Jesus is like, um, actually, I think you're the one. Do, do you see her? Do you see her love, her devotion? Do you see her repentance? Do you see her affection? That's all Jesus saw. And this would be new information for Simon. Jesus was trying to change. He would never have interpreted God's word in these ways before. This is probably not new information for you. I realize that sometimes we come to church on Sunday morning because we're going to learn something that we never learned before. And Chad and Drew do a great job of teaching things here in this church that maybe are new information, new instruction, new interpretation for you. And I love that about this church. But sometimes we come to church because we need to be recalibrated. 
And that's what this message is for me. It's a recalibration because we can ingest God's word and understand it. Or we can metabolize God's word and live differently forever because of it. And that's, <laughs> that's what God is saying. This is what Jesus is saying to Simon. Will you metabolize what I'm telling you? Will everything about your life now reorient to this thing that I'm trying to teach you? And he's asking us the same thing this morning. Will we reorient ourselves? Will we recalibrate ourselves? Will we stop looking at people with our natural selves and will instead we, will we put on our supernatural self? And that, that was my gut check as I was getting ready for this morning. I was asking myself, like, do I see people that are normally like marginalized or overlooked? Do I see people around me the way that God does? It's frankly easier not to, right? Seeing someone means I got to get engaged. It means I got to be inconvenienced. It might require sacrifice on my part. I might be asked to pray to someone. It's going to cost me something to see someone. And I've been asking like, oh, am I a Pharisee, Lord? Would I rather stay separate or am I willing to see something and respond? I have a good friend who lives in another state who has an adult daughter with an alcohol addiction who's in a different state than the, than the parents. And if you have ever loved a child with an addiction, you know that that is a constant wrestle with when to intervene and when to face, let them face consequences and all, all of that mess. It's hard. That's a hard, messy storyline in a family. And they got a call that their daughter was picked up for a DUI. And they were trying to figure out how fast they were going to rearrange to get to her and what, what that was going to require and what, they should, what their intervention should look like and just all the questions that there are no right easy answers for. And they asked a couple people that they care about to pray. And so I was one of those people. So I was praying for her this week. And then they sent a, another text well, closer to midnight and said, uh, tonight, this was the dad who texted me. Tonight I'm grateful for Russell and Cheryl. Their daughter Stephanie checked into a cabin at KOA. That would not be where she would normally have stayed. She had no luggage, no car, no bags. She wore a black Velcro ankle bracelet. Cheryl noticed as she checked her into the cabin and later told her husband, Russell, about this young woman. Russell said he just couldn't sit by and worry. And so that night, Stephanie heard a knock at her cabin and Russell and Cheryl stood there with a plastic tub full of bed linens and a pillow and a towel and a blanket. And he said, we don't need to know any details. We just want you to know you're loved and here are some bed sheets. Steph started to cry and Russell said, don't cry, just show us that smile. She just told us that whole story on FaceTime, laying on fresh white sheets that's when I cried. I'm so, that's what the dad said. I'm so amazed at their simple act of love and care. It felt like angels were stepping in when I've been sitting here all night worrying that I'm not there. And I don't know this couple, everything I know about them, I just told you. I don't know for sure that they're part of our family, but it sure seems like it. That's how we want God's kids to act. We want them to see something and decide, I'm not gonna separate myself from that ankle bracelet. Who knows what that story is? Who knows how messy that thing is? Who knows what she's capable of? Who knows what she's up to? Who knows what, what's going on? Who, she didn't have any bags? Who knows? I'm not, we have choices. We can either separate ourselves from those kinds of things or we can see something and respond to a need. And could we be, could God's kids be the kind of people who instead of asking things like, what's wrong with that girl? Or what's wrong with that guy? We ask instead, I wonder what happened to them. And then 
We flex our spiritual muscles of asking, Lord, what might you be inviting me to do? Now that I've seen how I respond to a need. And I just want to say, like, by the way, the gas for my response comes from my understanding of what God has looked at me and responded to me. That Jesus was desperate for Simon to realize, I don't care if you measure yourself as a 50 denarii sinner or a 500 denarii sinner. Listen to me. You, you do not have the capability of repaying your debt. You both need forgiven. And the one that's got more is going to love me more. So don't pretend you don't have more sin. The more I recognize my own sinfulness and God's immeasurable grace towards me, the more I have it in my bucket to give away to others. Jesus is, I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say desperate for Simon to understand this because he presses into it even more. He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. This woman's anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. That's his punchline, right? To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. This little statement teaches us all kinds of things about kingdom principles and kingdom math. We will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. As a Pharisee, Simon would have checked all our boxes. He would have been a good tither, a good server. He would have memorized a whole bunch of his Bible. But did he actually know how sinful he was? If he didn't know how sinful he was, I can promise you, he would have been terrible to live with. It is terrible to live with people who don't recognize their own sin. They end up being prideful defensive, critical, judgmental. They see the faults of others. That's what happens when we see other people's sins as greater than our own. Terrible people to live with. I know because I was one of them. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of you here who are married find yourself having creative conflicts differently, you know, depending on the day of the week or the, or the month of the year. But most married couples have pretty much the same fight over and over again. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Must have been just 8.30, no worries. <laughs> My husband and I fought about the same thing so predictably that honestly I could tell you exactly when it was going to happen. It happened every Saturday morning. We were living as missionaries at the time, and I, during the week you just never knew what to expect on any given day. There was always emergencies at an orphanage with a staff member, with a team that was visiting. You just, you just had very low expectations about your time. But Saturday morning, every orphan I knew was sleeping. Everybody who was going to come visit us was still en route. And every staff member was enjoying their own discretionary time. So we would wake up on Saturdays for the first time all week with the time and the freedom to do whatever we wanted. And I would wake up with these sky-high expectations. And in our house, we define expectations as premeditated resentments. And I would wake up and I would say like, um, you know, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We should have family time. We should go on hikes and play board games and eat pancakes. This is going to be awesome. And my husband, who had the same exact lifestyle and the same first opportunity for discretionary time, woke up on Saturday mornings and thought we should rotate our tires and pay our taxes and go to the grocery store. <laughs> and those agendas would clash at some point. And some days they were lovely clashes and some days they were wildly immature. And we would have what we called in our marriage a disconnect. And not because I'm holier and not because I'm better. 
just because my personality does not like disconnection, I usually went and found him first. And we would renegotiate our needs and communicate what we wanted and somehow salvage the day and get a little bit of everything that what people wanted done. And we thought we were so mature that it didn't ruin the day. But listen to me, it is not maturity when seven days later you do the same thing all over again. And this was going on for a while, and I was studying at this time the Minor Prophets. And if you've ever studied the Minor Prophets, I'm going to simplify them for you. They're the last 12 books of our Old Testament. And basically, God's kids do the right thing, and then they do the wrong thing. And God tries to tell them that they're on the wrong path, and it's going to lead to their destruction, and they don't listen. So God sends a prophet to speak on his behalf, and they wrestle and wiggle under that kind of conviction. And usually a portion of them respond to it, and God calls that the remnant, and he rebuilds with them, and a portion of them rebel, and they go off to their own destruction. And that story gets retold over and over again in the Bible. Those are the minor prophets. And I was studying the book of Hosea, and Hosea is 14 chapters long. So the verse I'm going to read to you is in verse seven, in chapter 7. So at this point, they've done the right thing and the wrong thing, and God tried to tell them, and they didn't respond. So God sent Hosea to tell them. And Hosea says to them in chapter 7, I long to redeem you, but you speak lies to me. You don't talk to me from your heart. You just wail at me from your bed. And what God was saying, he'll say in a couple chapters later, they need to break up some fallow ground in their heart. They need to confess their sins. What God was saying to his kids was, hey, listen, you're more upset about the consequence of our sin, what it feels to be disconnected from me, than you are actually about the sin that created the disconnection. I don't want to just hear you wail at your beds about how it feels to be apart from me. I actually want you to talk to me from your heart. Let's get to the root of what's happened here. And when I was studying that, I realized that's exactly what was happening on Saturday mornings. When I was going back to tell Todd I was sorry, I was just saying sorry for like, hey, I talked to you that way in front of the kids. Hey, sorry I had that disrespectful attitude. Hey, sorry that I kind of jumped all over you. I was talking about the consequence. I was hating the disconnection that we had, but I wasn't really ready to confess the root of the sin that created that in the first place. And after Jesus and I had an opportunity to lay his word next to my life and I felt the friction, I felt convicted that I was carrying around and living out and holding on to the sin of pride. I, I honestly thought my way was better. Like if we don't do Saturday mornings the way I want to, our whole family is going to hell in a handbasket. Like we've got to play board games and go hiking and have pancakes. Like this is how families work. I don't care about our taxes and our tires. Like this is what we're supposed to do. I was prideful. And when I took my confession of pride to him, it invited him to do the same. And I'm happy to report we no longer fight on Saturday mornings. We're now working on Thursday nights, but you know, stay tuned. <laughs> but the truth is when we lack the capacity to forgive someone else, do some reverse engineering, the truth is, am I actually deeply aware of my own sin? Probably not. Because I get capacity to forgive others when I recognize what God has forgiven me for. Jesus, he was willing to associate with sinners because he knew exactly what he could do with them. Exactly what Chad talked about last week. When we put our life up against God's word and his Holy Spirit, he can transform us to be anything. Jesus loved to be with sinners because he knew how the story could end. In contrast, those Pharisees, they distanced themselves from sinners because they didn't want to be contaminated by them. They didn't see what God could do in their lives. They just judged them from a position of pride which lacked, because of that, they lacked the capacity to, to see what God was up to. This story teaches us 
It teaches us loud and clear that love is proximate. It's near. And as Jesus puts a bow on this story, he's going to say to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And I'm reminded, well, then he, he goes on to say to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I, I'm reminded that Jesus is always, 2023 is no different than the story that we read. He is always doing more than one thing at a time. You read this story and you think, this story has got to be about this woman. I mean, look at it. She gets to go in peace. No, actually, this story is absolutely about Simon. God had a message to teach the Pharisees. Or maybe this was about like the other people who were like, who is this? What kind of authority does he have? He's trying to get the attention of these people who check the boxes but don't actually know who he is. The answer is yes to all of them and to all of us who want to read the story. God is going to do so many things at one time. In this one interaction, he's teaching us how to treat others. He, he honors this woman above everyone in the room. And I think he honors her before everyone in the room. I'm sorry. And it's probably not something that happened to her very often. If her name is literally a woman who's a sinner, like that's her identity. She'd probably never been honored before others. He honors her. He forgives her. Right? That's probably something she hadn't experienced very much of, freedom from shame. If we want to look like Jesus, we'll free people from shame. We'll forgive them. And then she was sent in peace because you know why? Jesus is the giver of all good gifts. He's a good gift giver. And he wanted to make sure that she walked away with things like forgiveness and peace and relationship so that she could be now free to go out and tell other people about that kind of story. That she met someone unlike anything she's ever seen. And it was going to transform her natural self into something utterly supernatural. And this is what Jesus is looking for, right? He's looking for us to have a recognition of our own sin. He's looking for us to have a little chutzpah in our faith. He's looking for us to have a tenderness in our hearts towards others so that we would see and respond to the needs around us and he's looking for us to have a willingness to be foolishness in our worship. And as I, I'm going to close this here in prayer, but as I close, the word that's like in my mind, I can just see it, is go, church, go. Go. Go out into the world and look, look at people. Like, go see them. It, I mean, this makes me feel like an old lady, but I'm telling you, increasingly we are judgmental as a culture. We are looking at something that's often two-dimensional and jumping to all kinds of assumptions. And if we don't like what we're jumping to, we separate ourselves from it. That's a Pharisee. I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be like Russell and Cheryl, who had none of the answers to any of their questions. But they were not afraid to engage. They weren't afraid to show love. They weren't afraid to look like God's kids. Like church, first, take a moment, recalibrate, tell the Lord, I don't want to be terrible to live with. I, I, I kind of been putting myself in the 50 denarii camp, but I think I'm probably more like 500. I've got plenty of sin and will you forgive me of it? I cannot believe, regardless of where you fall on the 50 to 500 scale, you have a debt you cannot pay. And he has paid it for you. 
get that soaked into your soul and let that bucket fill up and then go pour it out into the whole world because they need to know that kind of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that you are a debt payer and that you're not afraid if we owe 50 or 500, you're not afraid of our reputation, you're not afraid of our appearance, you're not afraid of our past, you're not afraid of any of it. You want us to be proximate and to come near. You're willing, you're willing to be associated with us because you see that which is yet to come. So Jesus, it's with the authority that I have as a co-heir with you that I ask you release an anointing on this church that as they go forth today and see people, they would feel prompted in your spirit to put their spiritual goggles on, to engage where you're calling them to and to look like you into a world that's never seen anything like it. We love you, Jesus, and we long to reflect you. And I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.